Tell them the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. Radical Christian. What's up, Radical Christians? It's me, Drew Graffia, your host, and today I have a prehistoric treat for you. With the upcoming Nephilim Mounds Conference in Newark, Ohio on March 27, 28th, and 29th, we need to discuss the Nephilim Mounds. Now, these are various mounds that were built using advanced knowledge, such as advanced mathematics, advanced geometry, and advanced knowledge of the stars. Thousands of these mounds are spread all across the Midwest, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, not to mention all the other structures across the globe. Now, the upcoming conference is in the Ohio Valley in the heart of a lot of these mounds. And on the last day of the conference, we will be visiting these mounds. So you should know a little bit about them before you go treading on them. Before I forget, before we go any further, let's go ahead and join in agreement and a prayer. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you bring your truth through this broadcast, that anything that's not true be dropped away, and that you further your kingdom by any means through this broadcast. We ask that the focus be you and nobody's, nobody else gets lifted up. Nobody's name, nobody's research, nothing gets lifted up except for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's get back to it. Now, when the first white settlers came to the Ohio Valley, they asked the natives who built the mountains. And the natives said that those mounds were there before they were. They did not acknowledge building them. And in the late 19th century, mainstream archaeology came to the conclusion that the Native Americans built these mounds, but then forgot. That's pretty stupid, huh? This is just the first thread that when you pull it, it unravels the whole fabric of the hidden history of our world. Who are the mysterious mound builders? The Nephilim. Now at this conference, you will have various speakers there. You will have L.A. Marzulli, Russ Dizdar, Chief Joseph Riverwind, and yours truly. Now Chief Joseph Riverwind deals with these things from the Native American perspective. He is in fact a chief and he knows a lot about their culture that he can offer about the Nephilim Mounds. L.A. Marzulli talks about the structures and the mathematics behind the mounds and who these builders were. And you know Russ Dizdar has those spiritual implications covered. Me, myself, I will be talking about their connection to the old gods, the fallen watchers. So it's going to be a treat. Let's get started and go ahead and check out our episode layout. We have six sections of our episode today. Our first section will be the importance of oral tradition. Section two will be forbidden knowledge. In that section, we have three subsections. Number one, metallurgy. Number two, stars, constellations, and the signs. Number three, mathematics. Now to section number three, we have the mounds themselves. And within that section, we will cover Cahokia, Monk's Mound in St. Louis, Missouri. We'll cover Poverty Point in Pioneer, Louisiana. We will cover Fort Ancient in Oregonia, Ohio. We will cover the Serpent Mound in Peebles, Ohio. Lastly, we will cover the Great Circle Mound and Octagon Complex in Newark, Ohio, which is where we will be attending on the last day of the conference. Our fourth section will be the cover-up with our subsection of academic bias. Our fifth section will be necromancy and divination. Within that section, we have Geller Hill, the ancient burial site. We have occult power and spirits of the dead, and we have the Rephaim connection. And then six, you know how we do it on this channel? We have our why this matters, because all of this is useless if it can't help you in some way. 
Now for our paid content for this week, I will be going over one of the themes that will be in, in one of my presentations at the conference. It's a very important theme and it ties a lot of things together. So if you become a member of Daily Renegade, we donate to three other charities and we donate to St. Jude's Children's Hospital to help cure children of cancer. It's a great, awesome alternative to Netflix. The website has been popping lately, so get in while you can. Now, this whole episode is based off material found in these three DVDs. These, these are the three On the Trail of the Nephilim DVDs from L.A. Marzulli. I highly recommend them. This one, number three, is my favorite, and this one comes free when you sign up for the conference and use the code SUPERNATURAL. L.A. will send this to you for free, so that's awesome. So section one, this is the importance of oral tradition. Now, this is Chief Joseph Riverwind's area of expertise. So when it comes to oral tradition, not just of Native Americans, but of even the biblical forefathers, oral tradition was super important. It wasn't only a form of entertainment, it was also an occupation. This was something the elders would pass down to those who they could trust to, to learn these stories and carry them on. Now there was no room for error in these stories. There was room for interpretation, but there was no room for error. So keep in mind, this was how they passed down their history. They were very, very detailed in how they would pass down these stories. Now, when it comes to the Native Americans, they are no different. They, were, they valued their oral traditions very highly, and they meticulously preserved their stories from antiquity all the way till now. Now, when you ask mainstream archaeology who built these mounds, the conclusion they came to was that the Native Americans built them, but then they forgot. Now, Chief Joseph Riverwind will tell you that there is no way they would forget any part of their history, let alone these giant structures they built. Now what is interesting is in their oral traditions, these structures are accounted for in a lot of the tribes. They say that a race of red-haired, light-skinned giants with six fingers built these mounds. The oral traditions of the Delaware tribe say that the Allegheny giants built the serpent mound. Now the Native American people were aware of solstices and equinoxes, and they also traveled off the lunar and solar calendars. But they did not have the in-depth knowledge of the stars and constellations that was needed to build these mounds. And they will say that themselves. One thing we also see in the oral traditions of the Native Americans and most every other culture is a race of star people or flying beings. Now this lines up with the Enoch account and the Genesis 6 account. We all know that. Us as Christians, we're all aware of this paradigm. Now when you get into the oral traditions and the, the culture of these Native American peoples, you find out that some of them did have dealings with these Nephilim. Some of them did trade with them, but most of the time they were harassed by them and they even had to go to war with them. And they said these were ferocious killers who had sexually perverse appetites. Now when it comes to the mounds themselves, you have what's called the NAGPRA, which is the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. Now the, what this does is any remains or artifacts found on Native American land is given to the corresponding tribe. Now this is a good thing for the most part, but what this actually can do is stop the, the investigation and research of these mounds to a certain extent. You can no longer just go there and dig them up because these people will go and protect their land as they should, but this kind of halts and limits the amount of research we can do now. Now if the oral tradition wasn't enough, you have a direct quote from Chief Wallace in the popular website Indian Country Today, and Chief Wallace says this regarding the Nephilim Mounds. Although we don't claim that we built Serpent Mound, historically we respected and protected various mounds and earthworks. 
So that's a little taste of the oral tradition, what they say, which is they, the Native Americans say they did not build these things, and some of them said that a race of giants built them. So we got into their oral tradition, and this is going to be a rapid-fire episode. I'm going to give you everything that you need to get caught up to speed for the Nephilim Mounds and for the conference coming up. And I expect to see many of you there, because it's going to be a blast. Why not spend your money on something that builds you up, builds your knowledge up, and pushes God's kingdom forward? And speaking of knowledge, now we are going to get into the forbidden knowledge section of our discussion. So the people that mainstream archaeology says built the mounds did not have the knowledge or technology that is exhibited in these mounds. So when you look at how they're built, the angles they're on, where they intersect with lunar and solar calendars, and where they intersect with constellations and stars, you would have to have that knowledge when you built these structures. You would have to have intense mathematical knowledge to build these perfectly angled, mathematically precise structures. Now, not only that, you would have to have the manpower to do this. Now, the Native Americans lacked the, the knowledge to do this, and they didn't have the unification among all of their tribes. Even if they did gather everyone together, there wasn't enough people to accomplish this task. Now, one thing that's very important, if they did have this knowledge, it would have carried on past the mounds. There's a reason why these great structures just stopped. Now, there have been some replicas after of these mounds, but they're always shoddy reconstructions or cheap imitations, basically. They, they built them, but there's the, the ones that are built after erode, and they're nowhere near as big. Now, this begs the question, where did this knowledge come from, and who had it? If it obviously wasn't these Native Americans, it has to be somebody. Now, where in our biblical knowledge do we know about certain beings coming down and giving knowledge in exchange for women, Genesis 6, and First Enoch 6. Now, who were these builders? It's obvious they were the Nephilim. Now, where did they get their knowledge? They got their knowledge from their heavenly fallen fathers, the Watchers, the group of seraphim angels, the fallen ones. They gave their sons the knowledge. Now, some of the things that they taught their sons were metallurgy, alignments of the sun and stars, mathematics like square root and pi, and all of these things have been exhibited in the Nephilim mounds. So let's get into metallurgy. We're going to look at 1st Enoch 8.1. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them all the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments. Now within the Nephilim sites, we have found many metal objects, including a 30 pound axe head and a bronze lance. So that's like a spear tip. And that was found in Michigan. Now they would have to have the knowledge of metalworking to make that. And again, the Native Americans did not have that advanced of knowledge. Now, when it comes to a 30-pound axe head, this is, what, this is what mainstream archaeology says. They say it's ceremonial. So if you go to the gym, go pick up the 30-pound weight. Now, in a ceremony, ceremonies aren't quick. They're drawn out. They're, they're ceremonial. They're long-winded. They're, they're meant to put on a big show. Carry a 30-pound weight around for more than a minute and just see how that feels. You don't have to be a, a researcher to go do this. Just go grab it. There's no way these are ceremonial, and why would they waste precious materials to make a giant axe head? That's ridiculous. Now let's get into stars, constellations, and signs. Now this is from 1st Enoch 8.3. It says, Barakrijal taught astrology, Kokabel the constellations, Ezekiel the knowledge of the clouds, Arachiel the signs of the earth, Shamsiel the signs of the sun, and Sariel the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. So this is right. This right here is an account of fallen angels teaching the exact knowledge that we find in the mound building. Now, this historical account leads us to believe that these are the ones who, who made the mounds. 
Now, in 1985, professors at Earlham College set out to debunk the fact that these had any astrological or solstice alignments at the Newark Mounds. And instead, what they found was a complex lunar calendar that predicted eclipses and understood the 18.61 metatonic cycle of the moon. Now, that does not happen by accident. There is no way that happens by accident. Now, this is all from people that didn't have the wheel. And you expect them to have this in-depth of math? It doesn't make sense. And speaking of math, let's get into our next subsection, mathematics. Now, there is evidence that the, the slope of the, the slope angle of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is 51.86, it might also be embedded in the mounds. And that shows a universal construction. Like, this is, a, this is one of their tenets of how they build. Uh, but aside from that, the knowledge you would have to have is trigonometry to build these mounds. Trigonometry, geometry, bisecting angles, and many other... Oh, and surveying. You have to be an expert surveyor, an expert engineer. All of these things which those natives did not have. And none of this is to disparage the native people or to say that they were ill-equipped or they, they were not smart. This is to say that they were not at that level at that time. There's evidence that they were not. But yet we have these mounds that are built with this knowledge. The only other option is these are different builders. Another thing that goes into these are astronomy. Now you have to have precise mathematical calculations to line things up with stars, constellations, and all those kind of things. Now not, not only do you need that, but with, along with geometry, you would use sacred geometry. Now this was a hallmark of Nephilim structures or any structure that is believed to be built by a, by Nephilim builders or fallen ones, they all have sacred geometry. They're all arranged in very specific ways in very exact spots for very exact reasons. And we'll get into those reasons later. But they were arranged in such a way that to anyone that saw these things, they would know who these were for and who they were in honor of. If you built this mathematically precise giant building that lined up with all these things and nobody else knew about how to, how to do that, it would be obvious that you got that knowledge from somewhere and you were paying homage to somebody. Now, a lot of these structures, you cannot see the layout from the ground level. They even have a two-story platform built by the Serpent Mound. And when you stand on there, you still cannot see the entire thing. So while they're doing these intense calculations, if they made one mistake, just, just one degree off, the farther they got out, it would be farther and farther and farther off from their calculations. Now, they would have no way of seeing that they were off. If they can't see from above, which is the only way to fully see these things, how would they know if they made a mistake and how would they be able to correct it? Answer me, answer that. Now when the, the white people, the Europeans that came over, they didn't even have this math. Now these people showed use of the Pythagorean theorem before Pythagoras was even alive. Now who did have this knowledge? Well, we know the watchers brought it down, but we also, through history, we have a connection to the Middle East. Now L.A. Marzulli thinks that the giants during Joshua's conquest fled and came to the Americas. Now, with this Middle Eastern connection, we know that the Amorites developed advanced mathematics when they controlled Babylon from 2000 BC to 1600 BC. They also had Hammurabi's Code, which is a code of laws, and they also had the Pythagorean Theorem before Pythagoras was alive. So, so far, all of this evidence points to Nephilim builders, not native builders, and not knowledge of this world. Basic stuff, we get this, we understand it, we just need to cover the details so you can get fired up for the conference. What other conference preps you for all this stuff? None, none. And now we get into section three, the mounds themselves. So I took a handful of choice mounds we're gonna cover. We're gonna look at the details of all of them so you can know what's going on. 
Now, Cahokia, this is called Monk's Mound, and it is in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, this is named Monk's Mound because there was a Catholic church built on those grounds, which I don't think is a coincidence because we know the Catholics like to build on top of Nephilim sites to take all the goodies from there and leave no goodies for the laymen or the L.A. men, like L.A. Marzulli. That was so stupid. Now, the base of Monk's Mound is wider than the Great Pyramid of Giza, and it goes up to 100 feet tall. And on top is a large platform. Now, this is where activities would take place, like human sacrifice, worship, all those kind of sick, nasty things that are, are in line with the Nephilim. Now, the whole complex that it's on has mounds that are all similar to, to other structures that are on Teotihuacan, Mexico, and Corral, Peru. Now, this is interesting because it also shows a like-minded building process across the globe. Now, some of these structures, like the American Stonehenge and Mount Hermon and the Stonehenge in the UK, if you draw a line on a map, they, it bisects all three of those things. That is not an accident. Now, with the Monk's Man in particular, that's over 450,000 pounds of dirt that, ha- that would have to be moved and compacted down. Now, how did they do this? How did these Native Americans do this? Well, they just got the shoulder blade of an elk or a deer. So it's like a little, it's like shaped like that and tied it to a stick. Or they got a flint hoe, which is about this wide. It goes to about there. And they just dug it up. 450,000 pounds, and they compacted it. And all these things are level, so they just they just knew how to do it. Now, Eli Marzulli, in his DVDs, actually tested this method and proved that it sucks. Now, one thing that mainstream archaeology also says is that these, these mounds were made over decades or a couple hundred years, a monk's mound in particular. Now, with all this advanced mathematics, knowledge of the solar system, and all those kind of things that that were required to make a mound like Monk's Mound, that becomes a difficult theory because there was no pre-existing culture in that area at that time. The knowledge can't just drop out of nowhere. Now, in 2015, they went to do renovations on the mound to fix some areas that were eroding, and they took soil samples. Now, these samples contained pollen and seeds in them, which shows that these mounds were built in decades, not in the 250 or so years they're saying that it took to build them. And keep in mind, these are all people who by their own admission did not have the wheel, and by their own admission didn't build it. Now we're gonna move on to Poverty Point. Now Poverty Point is in Pioneer, Louisiana. It is made of 390,000 tons of dirt. Oh, and the last one, Monk's Mound, was 450,000 tons of dirt. I said pounds, I meant tons, my bad. Now, at this site, they say that mainstream archaeology says that this took 90 days to build. Now, when I believe Rick Woodward asked the the people that worked at the site how, how they had the manpower to build this and, and how many people lived on, the, on in that area, they said it would be they said in each area would have five to ten villagers, which would be made up of one to two extended families. Now, each with each of those extended families have 25 people in them. So if you have 10 villages with 25 people each, that would be 250 people. So in 90 days, 250 people moved 390,000 tons of dirt. This is this is so easy to debunk because if you just go and take their facts and you just think about it, you just think about it, it doesn't work. So 250 people moved 390,000 tons of dirt in 90 days. Now, if there were even now, that's how many people that by the people who worked there, that, that's how many people they said lived at around there at that time or would typically be there. Now, let's say they all united and there was a ton of them together doing it. There are not enough burial groups found to sustain that many people. Not enough people lived and died there to show that that's what was going on. 
Now this is the same story everywhere that you hear from the natives. They didn't build them. They were already there. A group of seven to nine foot tall beings built them. Giants who are vicious jerks. So now let's go ahead and move to Fort Ancient, which is in Orgonia, Ohio. Now this is constructed of over 18,000 earthen walls. Some are over 20 feet high. Now in their heyday, they could have been as tall as even 30 feet high. So it would take 209 dump trucks full of dirt to construct what they said these Native Americans did with primitive tools. Now this Fort Ancient is constructed on an 18.5 year lunar calendar, just like the Serpent Mound and America's Stonehenge. So this is not a coincidence. These things do not line up coincidentally. Now this has 553,000 cubic feet of dirt on their property. And with that estimation, it would take, it would be a 200 mile long line of dump trucks to take enough dirt to rebuild this. So how did they, how would they even compact this dirt? Cause you can't just pile it up. You gotta compact it. So how would they even compact that much dirt, let alone move it? Now this, this site, the reason why I say that is cause this site is, is perfectly level within two inches on this 45 acre plaza, perfectly level. So it is perfectly flat. Now, according to Chief Joseph Riverwind, one elder said that, I think he was talking about these giants, they use giant logs to compact it and level it. Keep in, now, I don't know if he was saying the natives said that they did that, which would not be true, or if he said the giants did it. If they're giant logs, it would make sense for the giants to be the ones rolling those. Now, they also had in-depth knowledge of these things given to them by their fathers. Now, these giants would build these mounds and they would rule from there. Remember, they ruled over mankind because they were bigger, stronger, and had supernatural abilities and powers. They were half angel and half human. So we would stand no match against them unless the living God was empowering us or unless we had really great strategies or outnumber them. Now, they were you were able to kill them. They do have uh, human physical flesh, so they are able to die and be killed. Their spirits live on, but they are able to be killed. But when you have a group of giants, a group of warrior giants, that's not an easy army to take out unless the living God is with you. Then it's nothing. Now, this site also had solar and lunar alignments like many of them. And when L.A. Marzulli tested the theory about them digging it up with primitive tools, putting it in a deerskin or wicker basket, and then walking it to a site, he tested this, and the stats he came up with is that it would take 27.8 million one-man bucket loads of dirt to create Fort Ancient. And there are over 10,000 mounds in Ohio alone. So these people must have been, their whole lives and cultures and history were just going around making mounds all the time. That's their whole pastime, that's their life. They are the mound lords, they love it. So now we are going to get into the Serpent Mound. Now this is an important one. The Serpent Mound is the largest snake effigy in the world. It is a giant coiled serpent that undulates in a specific pattern that aligns with constellations. Now its mouth at the end of it is eating an egg. Now what is egg? Egg is fertility, egg is life. This is a seed. Now what this, likely what this snake effigy is representing, this serpent mound, is the seed war of Genesis 3.15. Now let's go ahead and look at the verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is talking about the seed of the woman versus the seed of Satan. Now the seed of Satan would be these Nephilim, these hybrid, demonic, spirit-filled, half-human, half-angels. Now keep in mind, you cannot see this serpent in its entirety from the ground. You can't. Now you can see it from the air. 
Now, not only do you have all these legends and oral traditions of star people, but who is the prince and power of the air from Ephesians 2 that we learned in our last episode? Our last two episodes. That is Satan. Satan is the prince and power of the air. Now, he is always depicted as a reptilian or serpent among many of his his depictions. Uh, A serpent in the garden, uh, the ancient dragon in Revelation 12, 19, I believe. Now, you picture him up in the air. He controls the, the immediate atmosphere over the earth. He controls this realm. He has authority. Now, when he looks down, he can see this giant undulating serpent. Now, that is an homage to him. He is the serpent god, okay? Now, as of right now, there are so- there's a sign at the Serpent Mound location that credits the Shawnee with making the mound, even though the Shawnee themselves said that they did not make it. Now, that goes back to the quote we read earlier from Chief Wallace. This is, although we don't claim to have built the Serpent Mound, historically we respected and protected various mounds and earthworks. So, the sign says the Shawnee built it. The chief of the Shawnee, who knows these same oral oral traditions, says that they did not build it. That's like these modern archaeologists saying, you did build it. Now, here's, here's something that you really need to think about. If they spent all this time building this giant serpent mound, this raised platform of the serpent's body undulating all through the Ohio Valley, if they built that, why is there no iconography of serpents in their culture or religion, in the Shawnee people? Why is there no serpent iconography? But yet they built this giant monument to a serpent. Now, on the, on the center of that giant egg, there was a platform with, an, with burn marks and an altar. And I believe the altar fell off the edge, but basically it was set up there. Now, that is human sacrifice. That is for human sacrifice. And we're going to get into that more later. But this is the same type of thing you see at a bunch of structures, including the Standing Stone site in Gezer, Israel. So again, this points back to the megalithic builders being the culprits and people like the Amorites or the ancient Babylonians or or some sort of Nephilim-based people with this knowledge. Now, again, this is a Middle Eastern connection. This same altar, by the way, is at the American Stonehenge, a big flat altar for human sacrifice. And Russ Dizdar knows the spiritual implications of that, and he will be going over that. Now, in on this on the Serpent Mountain in 1872, the historical collections of Noble County, Ohio, recorded finding three eight-foot human skeletons on that site, in that mound. So Native Americans were not eight feet tall, but they found the remains of eight feet tall beings. Wouldn't that lead you to believe that those would be the ones that built that structure, the ones whose bones are right by it and who are big enough to accomplish a task of that size? Now let's move on to the Great Circle Mound and the Octagon Complex. Now this mound is where we will be going on the last day of our conference. We're going to be at the mounds, on site, looking at these things, being in the same exact place where human sacrifice likely took place, where these, these Nephilim beings likely actually walked where the gods probably were in the heavenly sitting right over it, the the sons of God, the fallen ones, the small G gods. Now this is the largest earthen enclosure in the world. The Circle Mount is about 1,200 feet in diameter and there's over 500 tons of earth. Now again, with this structure, with this enclosure, you cannot tell what it looks like from the ground. So now if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to make a perfect circle that is so big that you cannot see it from the ground, what if you make a mistake? How would you even know that you made a mistake and how would you even fix it? Not only that, but let's say you didn't, which is even crazier, how would you get a, a perfect circle for what you needed? Again, that takes a very in-depth knowledge of mathematics and calculations. This is also on the 18.5 year lunar cycle, which shows advanced mathematics, advanced engineering. And when this, was, when this site was in use, it encompassed over 3,000 acres. 
It also has a moat around it. Now this moat is perfectly level within six inches to a foot and used to be filled with water. Now this was fact checked by Todd Willis, who's a professional surveyor. So within six to 12 inches is the difference. And that's with years and centuries of erosion and stuff falling into it. But it's still within six to 12 feet level all the way around. So do you see the, the consistent theme of knowledge that was not there? that the native people did not have. Knowledge that, that we barely have today in, in most cases. Now this is one of the largest mounds in America as a whole. And just like the others, the Native Americans say that they, they were not the ones that built it. And the people here said they don't know who built it. Now we're gonna get into the cover-up. So Cyrus Thomas created the paradigm that the Native Americans built the mounds and forgot. Now, we all know about through the 18th and 19th century how there was tons of giant bones found. Now, some of that stuff may have been hoaxes or some people say they're mammoth bones, but when you find a full-blown skeleton, that's not a mammoth. When you find the arms, the legs, the human skull. Now, the thing with double dentition, Michael Heiser actually has a great article about double dentition, and that just means two rows of teeth. Now, it doesn't mean a row and then another row. It means a top row and a bottom row. That's that's what he, how he explained it. And he even showed articles where it says, like, oh, a beautiful ballerina showing off her beautiful double dentition. And it's like, does that mean she has four jaws or two jaws? No. Now, that I think what he was saying, that was a term back then of what double dentition meant, top and bottom row. But that aside, six fingers, that's pretty straightforward, six fingers. Now, eight-foot skeleton, that's pretty straightforward. Now, if you found a femur and, and you extrapolated a skeleton from there, I would understand where, where that's not as believable. But when you find the actual skeleton, that's a big deal. Now, we also know the Smithsonian went around and started taking these, these bones. They would say, hey, if you find something, you have to call us. We're the authorities in charge. They would show up to a site. They would confiscate the bones and nobody would ever see them again. Now, I think recently there's been articles of people that work there saying, yeah, we took, we took a lot of that stuff and we don't know where they are. Of course they know where they are. Those bones have genetic DNA material in them. They're gonna be used for something. They're not just forgotten in time. If it was a big enough deal to take them, it's gonna be a big enough deal to store them. Now, when Ellen Marzulli went to Catalina Island in California, he found the picture of Ralph Glidden with a giant below. He had three experts investigate it, and they all said that that was a nine-foot skeleton. Now, when he went back to the museum later, they covered up, they cut out the picture of the giant and put just the picture of Ralph Glidden up. You know, he talked to them about it. Eventually, with, they were under enough pressure, they put it back up. And I actually had a friend that went there, and he said that when he went there, they were kind of like disparaging L.A. Marzulli, and they were saying that, that oh no, that, that, that it said like Ralph was, it was basically painting Ralph Glidden in a bad light too. Now, the truth of who these people are, the truth that is being covered up, is that the Native Americans themselves said that these were a race of cannibalistic, red-haired giants with six fingers. They said they were sexually sadistic and perverse, and they were oftentimes at war with them. Now, this six-finger thing we could find in the biblical text. This is 2 Samuel 21:20. It says, And there was again war at Gath. Gath is the, where Goliath is from where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was a descendant from the giants, or he also was descended from the giants. So a lot of people think a giants didn't last after the flood. Some people think that Goliath, you know, if you do the, the royal cubit and the normal cubit, he actually was only six foot nine or something like that. I'm not sold on that. And right here, it says a man of great stature. It says six toes on the hand, or six toes on each foot, six fingers in each hand. And it says he was a descendant from the a descendant of the giants. I think there were Nephilim again after the flood. I think there were maybe smaller as it went on, but I think there was still stuff going on. Now, why would the Smithsonian cover this up? 
One of the reasons was to protect the Darwinian paradigm. So the whole evolution in Darwinian paradigm says that people migrated from Africa and, and it's a very specific thing they're saying. They're saying that over millions and millions of years people evolve. Now what this does, it removes the supernatural worldview from our world. Now on the very base level, when these people remove the supernatural worldview, they are no longer accountable to God. Okay. Now their evil hearts get what they, what they desire when they remove God from the picture. They're puffed up on their own intelligence that they cannot even fathom that there's a God. They're denying it. Now many careers would be undone and history itself would have to be rewritten if, if they acknowledge this supernatural paradigm. Now Chief Joseph Rivwin says that he has never come across a tribe that did not have a giant story with all the classic traits we talked about. He says these giants are never good and they would raid people and even bite people's heads off or drink their blood and just sick stuff like that. So now let's check out the academic bias. So like I said, they're protecting Darwinian evolution. Now, the way these guys go after that stuff and have in the past, Darwinism is their religion. They go after it with religious fervor. Now they wanna remove any semblance of the supernatural paradigm and they have even done what I mentioned earlier where they will find a, a molar and they'll extrapolate a whole skeleton off of it. They'll say, oh, if the molar was this big, the jaw had to be this big. If the jaw was this big, the head was this big. Boom, here's Lucy. And it's like, no, that's a molar. And when they tested it, it was a pig's molar. That's a real story. And guess what? That skeleton, I think it was Peking Man. It was either Peking Man or Lucy. But the, those, that, those skeletons are still in evolution textbooks, still in science textbooks. Science. It's 1984 all over again. And basically, if you go read the book 1984, I highly recommend it they would rewrite history. They would say, hey, here's a revision of the science books out. And it would be revisionist history. They would have changed it according to what political party was in power. And then they burn the other ones and they put this one out. So you, you send the old book up in a tube, get sucked up and the new one comes in and it has their own truth. So then pretty, pretty soon the whole narrative is so twisted, everything's a lie. Now in L.A. Marzulli's documentary, you see that in 2013, a man named Mark Armitage was fired from his job at the University of California State Northridge because he found a triceratops skeleton with soft tissue on it. He posted his findings and they fired him. Now, why, why would they do that? So soft tissue is one of the first things to decompose after a creature dies. The fact that they found soft tissue on a dinosaur shows that they did not die as far back as we are being told. Let that sink in. Now for publishing that, that goes against their evolutionary Darwinist paradigm. That, that more lines up with the biblical worldview. And they fired him, and guess what? He sued them, and he won handsomely a fat sack of dough. Now, that triceratops skeleton isn't the only crazy thing that's been found. They found skulls that were commented as being gorilla-like at some of these mounds. Now, when you look at a gorilla's skull, they are a lot longer than ours. So their face is kind of up here, and their head goes back a little bit like that. So when you think about that, where else do you see that? You see that in the elongated skulls in Chongos, Peru, and you know, ancient, ancient Middle Eastern cultures. You see that in a lot of places, these elongated skulls. Now that brings us to our quote from Flavius Josephus in 33 AD. It says, there were till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations of other men. So these things looked so different 
than humans, but you could still tell they were humanoid. They still had the arms and legs like human, but they were so different than humans that they were surprising to the sight. So that's not just like a big person. You see a big person, that's surprising to the sight. But if you see them with a giant weird head, that's a whole other thing. And then when you see, you know, their features that people there didn't have. So when you have a, a, a race of Native American people, brown skin, olive complexion, that kind of thing. And then you have this pasty white, kind of like my skin, this pasty white being with red hair and bright eyes. They're terrifying to the sight. So like L.A. Marzulli says, he believes that after the Joshua's conquest of Canaan, some of these giants fled, which is why Joshua should have killed them all, like he was told to. But hey, he did a pretty good job. They fled to the new world. Now let's get into our last section, necromancy and divination. Now, in a, in a third DVD in the series, L.A. goes to Geller Hill, which is an ancient burial site, and he brings with him the Newark Paranormal Team. Now they use this a device. They use a device called an ovalist, and what it does is it takes electromagnetic signals and transmits it into words. Now, when they were at the site, they turned it on. They were trying to wait for a signal, and the word popped up. It said "evil," and then a little bit later, the word said "witch." Now, this machine has tons of different words. They're not all supernatural words. They're just random words, prepositions, nouns, verbs, everything. But it said those two words, and then on film, L.A. Marzulli prays. And it tells him to turn it off, turn it on again, and a very different word pops up. I'm not going to spoil it, but it is worth the, the whole documentary alone if it was just that one part. So the word that pops up is mind-blowing. But the point of this is, this is modern-day necromancy and divination. Divination is, is, is basically contacting another spirit aside from God, and necromancy is contacting the dead. Now, when you have a device that transmits electromagnetic signals into words, that is basically modern divination, modern necromancy, because those words aren't coming out of thin air. I, I, at least that's not what I, that's not what I believe. And when you pray to the living God and, and it changes specifically, that's proof right there on film of this stuff. That's why I value LA's work so much for what he does, because it's just he's, he's going there. Who else is going there and doing these things? Now, modern the modern setting can take the, the evil feel away from these things, but these are the same things written in the Bible. Divination, necromancy. This is why it's so important to pray over uh, electronics, to pray over anything you think the enemy is, is tampering with or has sway over. You pray over it. You pray everywhere you go nonstop, bringing down these things. Now, also in the documentary, they use temperature guns, and they find that in one area, the, the temperature went from 83 degrees down to negative 4 degrees on the device. Now our subsection, occult power and spirits of the dead. So you remember in the Bible, the demon-possessed man, where was he hanging out? He was hanging out at the tombs. That is where dead people are, okay? So he did not have control over himself. He was supernaturally empowered, breaking chains, all those kind of things. And he was in the spot where the spirits of these giants likely would have been. Now certain tribes of Native Americans would go to these spots, these burial sites, these mounds, these, these burial mounds, and they would pray to get power from the spirits of these, these deceased giants. Now, these sites were demonically supercharged. Remember, the Nephilim had supernatural abilities and powers, and their spirits, according to Enoch, are still roaming the earth to this day. And all these ancient sites had altars for blood sacrifice. Now, we know uh, Abel's righteous blood cried out to Yahweh. So the blood, the blood is evidence of this stuff. And that land is covered in blood. Kind of like how our land, America, is covered in the blood of billions of innocent aborted children. That blood's crying out right now. Now, you see in the documentary, there's a church built on the site where tons of supernatural things happen. They looked out the window, they seen ghost wolves, cowboys in full dress, a, a Native Amer full Native American encampment, a spirit one where it wasn't real. They, they've seen a ton of stuff. 
These sites are supercharged with real occultic power and real spirits of the dead. Now our next subsection, who are these spirits of the dead? These are the Rephaim. So the Rephaim are the deceased spirits of the Nephilim. So they're basically demons, but they're also called in the Bible specifically Rephaim. Now at, the, at this ancient site in Israel called Gilgal Rephaim, it's a giant circular structure. There's a circle, I believe there's another circle inside of it. Now this is a burial structure. Now this is the same type of thing that you see in the Circle Mound in Newark. So that's another Middle Eastern connection. Now the Rephaim, their name is also synonymous with the word travelers. They're also called the travelers. Now where do they travel? They travel from their realm into this realm. Now how do they do that? Through these rituals, the occultic rituals, through these opening of doorways, these giving of authority, topas, authority. Now how do we know this is possible? Well, because God teleported Philip for his purposes, God supernaturally moved Philip through space and time for his purposes. And the, you know the evil side counterfeits everything Yahweh does. So shaman are evil counterfeit priests. So they are like the counterfeit version of our priests. They're interacting with the spirits of the Nephilim instead of Yahweh's spirit. Now they open gateways, portals, whatever you want to call them, into our realm. They give authority. So when they're doing these rituals, it creates authority. Now the veil, the spiritual veil at these Nephilim sites is thought to be very thin. And in 2012, a bunch of Mayan elders, they, they went on this, this tour. They brought, and remember 2012, the Mayan prophecy, they brought these 13 crystal skulls and they went to these sites and it was all over the Ohio Valley. Now, when they went there, the people that went said the whole area was supernaturally charred. They said you could feel the atmosphere changing. Now they were opening portals and since they went there and did that the amount of supernatural paranormal occurrences and and demonic attacks and and presence of new agers moving to the area has increased exponentially so let's go ahead and do what we like to do on the radical christian channel and get into why this matters because if you just know all this stuff and you sit at home all day and you just know it then it's just a hobby it doesn't do anything wouldn't you want to apply this to your life wouldn't you want to fight the kingdom of darkness? Wouldn't you want to spread this knowledge? Because let's say there's a, his, a secular history buff who loves history. Then when you show him this history, he's like, oh, wow, there's something to this. Let's say you have a friend who's good at mathematics. You show him how these mounds are, build, are built. And then he's like, man, that's actually, they, they wouldn't have had that mathematics. I know where the mathematics came from. So these are witnessing tools. This is a little, a little battering in your belt. So why does this matter? Now, the God worshipped at the region around the Serpent Mound, despite what the mainstream says, there's tons of evidence that it was Quetzalcoatl. Now, that was the plumed serpent of the Mayans. He was basically the deity worshipped over all Mesoamerican people. So why would these Mayans go there to Ohio, where it's not where they're from? It's not where they're from. But they went to that place to go open a doorway because that place is a spot. The Serpent Mound is dedicated to Quetzalcoatl and that's who they worship. And people say they didn't spread that far, but there's evidence that the Mayan culture spread far. Now that you'll have to check. You'll have to do your own research in that area. But when you look all through the biblical text, you see God telling people to go to these sites, telling his assigned people at like Joshua to go to these sites and destroy these altars, karem, devote them to destruction, put them under the ban. He told them to tear down these altars, destroy these things, because he knew there was real supernatural powers there and real danger. Now, America likely got its name from Amarakuru, which is the land of the plumed serpents. People say it was America of Vespucci, but evidence actually uh, points to him taking that name after, and this place actually being named Land of the Plumed Serpent. And if you look, 
with Mesoamerica, with, with Mexico and, and all those places in South America below us, land of the plume serpent, we're right by there. And if you look at our culture, yes, the serpent prevails here. And I believe the serpent, Quetzalcoatl, is Satan himself, is Lucifer, is the divine rebel, his depiction to these people. Now, Gary Stearman said that these Nephilim were fathered by the, the fallen angels and placed into specific locations to do their work and to build their structures. Now, the purpose of this was to corrupt the human genome. Just the same reason why Noah was perfect in his generations, his ways and his generations. He wasn't genetically corrupted. God wiped away all the genetic corruption, came back again. So the plan from day one is to corrupt the human genome and bring it under control of the fallen kingdom. So we are in a real spiritual war with real spiritual consequences. People are literally summoning the spirits of the Rephaim to empower them to push forward the dark agendas of the Watchers. These ancient deities we read about in our Bibles and other ancient texts. Now, if you want your Bible to come alive, here's another reason why this matters. If you want your Bible to come alive, look no further. This is actually Satan himself working in, the, in through, through these uh, these areas with these mounds dedicated to him. This is the, the divine rebel in the Bible that you read about, that you enjoy. This is him. Now, on these sites are the spirits of the Nephilim. They're called the Rephaim. They built these sites. So when you're reading Genesis 6, guess what? These sites are at Newark, Ohio. Now guess what? Their literal bones have been discovered there. So when you read the Bible and you're having a hard time connecting with it, just remember, you go to Ohio, you can go to just one short trip away to where this stuff is exactly real and happening. And when you feel a demonic presence there that you have to rebuke, you'll realize this: these are the same demonic entities that I read about in my Bible. These are the same ones that empower people. That, that people sacrifice to, to, to get more, you know, dark power. So what can you do about it? You can witness. With this knowledge comes a mission. You witness to people the glory of God. If you, if you go through the Nephilim to bring God, God glory, if you talk about them to bring God glory, good, praise be to God. If you go through, you know, generational lists in the Bible and that's how you bring God glory and that's how you, you show people and bring people to his name, good, do it. That's why I tell you, whatever you get excited about, go research. Now, you need to go to the Nephilim Mounds Conference in Newark, Ohio, March 27, 28, 29th. It's $89. It comes with a workbook we're all making, so you can fill it out while you're there. The last day, we're going to the Circle Mounds in Newark, Ohio. And this Nephilim Mound is going to be the, the centerpiece. The mounds are the centerpiece from the discussion. Russ Dizzer will likely do the spiritual implications. L.A. will likely talk about the structure and who these people were. Joseph Riverwind will likely talk about all of this from a Native American perspective, and I will talk about it in relation to the old gods. So this is, this is going to be the cutting-edge Nephilim information. It's going to be a blast. It's not just going to be knowledge, okay? It's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. Come meet the people who wrote the books you read, like Russ, L.A., and Joseph, and hopefully me one day. But thank you, guys. God bless you. This has been a blast, as always. And now for our paid content... We're going to go ahead and talk about some of the, one of the themes that I'm talking about in one of my presentations for the conference. So another week down, guys, we did it. Stay rad.